This is an ABC podcast. Science and religion are often seen as in direct opposition. Two ways of seeing the world and our place in it. And these two versions have constantly clashed over the centuries. But have they really? And will they in the future? I'm Paul Barclay. This is Big Ideas. Nick Spencer is a senior fellow at the religion and society think tank Theos in the UK and the International Society for Science and Religion. He says the view that religion has always been dead set against science is wrong. But that's not to say they coexist in complete harmony. They disagreed over matters of authority. Who gets to adjudicate on the nature of reality and why? And on matters of humanity. What kind of thing is a person? And when those two come together, then there are fireworks. Now, these are not small questions. But, as Nick Spencer says... The tensions between science and religion are in fact not about genesis or geology or the Big Bang or even evolution, the issues that many people fight over and have even died over. History shows the two have often been happy bedfellows and have been positively engaged for a long time. Pointing to centuries of complex and colourful interaction between science and religion, he proposes a new idea, that science and religion are actually partially overlapping. On Saturday the 30th of June, 1860, Oxford University experienced a very Oxford riot. The scene was the library of the new University Museum, which was the only building in the city that could accommodate the 800 or so spectators who were to witness this punch-up. The occasion was, in theory, a lecture on the intellectual development of Europe by an American academic. But, as everyone knew, in reality, it was a debate about Charles Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, which had been published nine months earlier. And the protagonists, the real protagonists, were Samuel Wilberforce, the Bishop of Oxford, and Thomas Huxley who was to become known to history as Darwin's bulldog. The Huxley-Wilberforce debate has passed into legend, the British equivalent of Galileo's trial. Unfortunately, in this particular case, our source documents are rather more fragmentary and our knowledge of the debate has to be pieced together from a handful of newspaper accounts and a number of gossipy letters. What appears to have happened is that Wilberforce made a facetious remark about whether Huxley would prefer to have been descended from an ape on his grandmother's or his grandfather's side. And Huxley responded that he would prefer to be descended from an ape than a bishop, or something to that effect. Either way, the audience response was riotous. Gentlemen jumped out of their seats, and at least one member, Jane Purnell, the Lady Brewster, fainted. The encounter went down as a scientific drubbing of religion. Another victory in the eternal war between truth and obscurantism, fact and faith, science and religion. Except for the fact that it didn't at the time and seems to have faded away from memory for decades 
until it was resurrected and embellished at the end of the century. In actual fact, the most important person on the stage at the time when it comes to the history of science and religion was the man to whose lecture Wilberforce and Huxley were, in theory, responding. His name was John William Draper, the son of a Methodist convert who had emigrated to America in his 20s and become an eminent chemist, the first president of the American Chemical Association. Draper also considered himself to be something of an intellectual historian, and it was he who delivered what, by all accounts, was a rather dull lecture before Wilberforce and Huxley took to the ring. Draper never mentioned this allegedly legendary debate in his later writings, which is another reason to think that it wasn't quite as big a deal as we now assume. But he did do something rather more important 15 years later, when he published a history of, as he put it, the conflict between science and religion which advanced a highly selective and tendentious narrative of the relationship between the two over the last 2,000 years. Draper had inherited something of his father's anti-Catholicism, and his book struck a powerful chord within a Protestant culture that was very worried at the time about Vatican authoritarianism and about levels of Catholic immigration. Not surprisingly, the conflict in Draper's book was mainly between science and the Catholic Church, Indeed, he explicitly excused Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy and Islam from his critique. And it was his book, together with another one, published 20 years later by the historian Andrew Dixon White, which formed the basis of the false history of science and religion that most people believe today. I say most because in the academic world, the history of science and religion has been studied forensically over the last 40 years or so, and there's been nothing short of a Copernican revolution in the discipline. A whole host of scholars have pointed out, at length, that the true history of science and religion was nothing like as oppositional as Draper and White claimed, and that for the majority of the time, science and religion had been very happy bedfellows. John Hedley Brooke, Bernie Lightman, Ronald Numbers and Peter Harrison, among others, have conclusively shown that science and religion, which are anachronistically modern terms, but we'll stick with them for the sake of simplicity, that science and religion have, as a rule, been positively engaged. The truth is that for pretty much every era in history, you could find religious characters vociferously defending, indeed often leading, the scientific enterprise of the moment, at the same time as you can hear others critiquing it. Moreover, even when they are critiquing it, they're doing so often for intelligent and erudite reasons, just as much as for blinkered or backward ones. So, to look at a few of the more famous examples. Copernicus never imagined that his theory was a threat to the faith. His reluctance to publish was entirely down to the weaknesses of his arguments, given the knowledge at the time. Almost nobody thought that decentering the earth demoted humans, as Freud was later to claim. The friction over heliocentrism and Galileo was primarily about the status of Aristotle in Catholic thought, and also the threat from Protestantism, not to mention a newfound animus between Galileo and his old friend 
newly enthroned as Pope Urban. The Royal Society, when it was founded, was in no way anti-religious. It simply wanted to distance itself from the theological conflicts that had torn the nation apart in the 17th century. Newton wrote considerably more about theology, which he considered far more important than he did about science, although he was distinctly unorthodox in his theological views. Most of the early work in the science of geology was conducted by Anglican clergymen in the first third of the 19th century, most of whom accommodated the newly extended history of the earth into their faith. Darwin did not lose his faith on account of evolution, or not exclusively, and he explicitly denied right to the end of his life that evolution was incompatible with theism. James Clark Maxwell, on whose shoulders Einstein is said to have stood, was a devout evangelical. And even Einstein himself, while in no way believing in a personal God, was serious about the quasi-religious metaphysics that he thought was behind the universe. I could go on, but hopefully the point will be made that the idea that religion has always opposed science is simply nonsense. So, however, is the idea that religion has always supported science. A few more examples. The teaching of Aristotle, scientific teaching of Aristotle, was banned in Paris by the church in 1277 because it was judged a threat to theology. 16th century Protestants pitted the book of Joshua against Copernicus's heliocentrism. The Catholic Church did ban Galileo's ideas and the teaching of heliocentrism for nearly 200 years. The Church in France, in particular, sought to suppress biological ideas in the 18th century for fear of what they did to the idea of God creating life. Geology was judged unbiblical by many in the 19th century, and Darwin was roundly attacked and trolled by some Christian correspondents. In short, the long interaction between science and religion has been much more complex and nuanced than the simplistic old conflict narrative would have us believe. And that's part of the problem. The best that the academics have come up with as a metaphor or a narrative to replace the old idea of conflict is complexity. And while that is undoubtedly more accurate, it's hardly more gripping. Conflict sells. Complexity bores. As one academic said of the so-called complexity thesis, it has literally nothing to recommend it except the truth. So should we simply give up and acknowledge that this whole field is just a mess? Having dismantled the idea of a historic warfare between science and religion, do we have anything to put in its place? Well, I would suggest we do, and we can begin to see what by returning to Oxford in 1860. Now, I mentioned earlier that, frustratingly, we don't have any extensive or reliable sources for the debate. But actually, this changed a few years ago. Recently, as Victorian periodicals and local newspaper archives have started to be digitised, one keen-eyed American scholar noticed a previously unknown and remarkably full account of the debate published in the Oxford Chronicle and Barks and Bucks Gazette. This was clearly the source text for the heretofore best account of the debate, the Athenaeum's account. But the Gazette offered much more detail, not to mention a rather charming running commentary on the crowd's animated response. Brackets, much laughter. Brackets, hear, hear. Brackets, applause. Brackets, laughter and cheers. It helps us get a better understanding of actually what went on. 
Now, in the first instance, it shows us what exactly the fuss had been all about. At one point, attempting to eject some levity into what was turning out to be a rather hot and dull afternoon, Wilberforce asked Huxley if he had any particular predilection for monkey ancestry, and if so, on which side? Whether he would prefer an ape for his grandfather and a woman for his grandmother, or a man for his grandfather and an ape for his grandmother? In effect, this dignitary of the established church had asked Huxley, in front of nearly a thousand people, which of his grandparents would he have preferred to have had sex with a monkey? Wisely, once his opponent had gone so low, Huxley went high. He replied, if the alternative were given him of being descended from a man, conspicuous for his talents and eloquence, but who misused his gifts to ridicule the laborious investigators of science and obscure the light of scientific truth, or from the humble origin alluded to, he would far rather choose the latter than the former. To which, according to the Gazette, there was much laughter and cheering. All good knockabout fun. But more importantly, the transcript also shows what was really at stake in the debate and how preoccupied the participants were by two other matters. The first was the question of the nature and dignity of humanity. Wilberforce was willing to countenance evolution in certain limited circumstances, but he did not, he could not extend that to humans. The way he used almost hysterically emotive language here showed how much that this was the issue for him. I quote, It is a most degrading assumption that man who in many respects, partook of the highest attributes of God, was a mere development of the lowest forms of creation. He could scarcely trust himself to speak upon the subject. So indignant did he feel at the idea. Huxley was able to respond to this successfully, as we can today. But for all that Wilberforce's objections were both scientifically and theologically wrong, it's worth paying attention to them and remembering his concern about what would happen to our concept of humanity if the only legitimate understanding of it was judged to be that which came from evolution or biology. For Huxley, the real debate was about a different matter altogether, authority. Huxley had begun his contribution by, quote, alleging the undesirability of contesting a scientific subject involving nice shades of ideas before a general audience. In other words, scientists shouldn't be expected to cast their pearls before a swinish audience like this one. It was not, you would have thought, a foolproof tactic for winning over your audience. More tellingly, he was indignant that an amateur clerical naturalist like Wilberforce should consider himself capable of adjudicating on such matters and he protested against this subject being dealt with by amateurs in science. This was a very big issue at the time. If you wanted to find someone doing science in the early part of the 19th century, there was a good chance you would alight on an Anglican cleric. 
Anglican clerics dominated the British Association for the Advancement of Science and were a major presence in the Royal Society. And they had powered much of British natural philosophy, as it was properly called, in the 18th century, which is incidentally another example of how science and religion had been very happy bedfellows. But things were changing. The word scientist was coined in 1834, and the role slowly professionalised over the middle third of the century. Huxley was particularly active in this endeavour, and he was indignant that amateurs like Wilberforce should be allowed to adjudicate on the matter. Although, as he rightly suspected, Wilberforce was in fact being coached by one of the best anatomists of the day. Either way, for all the hullabaloo, deep down, this was a debate about humanity and authority. And I would argue that deep down, the science and religion debate, and in particular at those moments when it's got a bit sparky, has also been about humanity and authority. When science and religion have disagreed in history, and I would re-emphasise the point that on balance, disagreement has been the exception rather than the rule, they disagreed over matters of authority. Who gets to adjudicate on the nature of reality and why? and on matters of humanity. What kind of thing is a person? And when those two come together, as they did in the 19th century, and in particular in Oxford in 1860, then there are fireworks. Now, if this is right, there are various ways you can respond to it. One is to go wholesale with the religious side and force science into some kind of Procrustean spiritual bed. As it happens, and despite how much time fundamentalists get and how young earth creationism is a growing phenomenon in our time, this has been a comparatively rare phenomenon and it's also a rather modern one. Either way, it is not one that appeals or, in my opinion, has anything whatsoever to recommend it. A second response is to say that in any battle between science and religion, or indeed, for that matter, between science and anything, science must always win. It sounds sensible at first, but I would suggest that anyone who thinks that science, and by this I mean a process of objective hypothesis, observation, experimentation, replication, falsification and so forth, if they think that science can adjudicate definitively on, say, questions of ethics or aesthetics or history or the humanities or even human nature, then they're being a bit hopeful. You only have to look at the story of scientific racism in the 19th and 20th centuries to get nervous about the idea that science can proclaim authoritatively and exclusively on human nature. Here's a painful example to explain why. In 1906, Otto Benga, a 23-year-old Congolese pygmy, was put on public display in the New York monkey house. Many speculated he might be the famously elusive missing link between humans and other primates. He was, in other words, a living example of evolution. We know, of course, that this is simply vile nonsense. But at the time, it was considered science, and people loved it, and thousands visited the caged man. Interestingly, it was the Coloured Baptists Ministers' Conference led by the Reverend James H. Gordon, who led the protests, complaining that, quote, we think we are worthy of being considered human beings with souls. 
Now, talk of souls was hardly going to persuade the scientifically minded men who put Benga in the monkey house. But it was nonetheless how Gordon chose to argue his case. And in the end, he won. In short, simply saying follow the science may be as short-sighted as those who simply say follow the religion. A few years ago, the American evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould tried to cut this Gordian knot with his idea of NOMA, which was a kind of third way in this debate. NOMA stands for non-overlapping magisteria and is used to indicate the idea that deep down, science and religion represent different intellectual endeavours, one about facts, the other about values, and that each is legitimate, but that neither encroaches upon the other. There's a certain neatness to this idea, which is one of the reasons that it has been so widely poo-pooed. After all, reality doesn't divide that neatly, and few people think you can split facts and values in that way. But I think there is something that can be salvaged from it, which is the idea of separate magisteria. As I've said, if you think your religion can tell you how elements are structured in the periodic table, say, or how the continents have drifted across the Earth's surface, you're going to be disappointed. But if you think your science can determine whether you should favour consequentialism or deontology or virtue ethics in your approach to morality, for instance, again, you're going to be disappointed. In that regard, science and religion are different disciplines, if that's the right word. What I think Gould got wrong is the idea, albeit born from good intentions, that these separate magisteria don't overlap. They do. And in particular, they overlap when it comes to our ideas of what or who the human is and how do we know. You could put it this way. If you want to understand the behaviour of carbon atoms, or the shift of tectonic plates, or the function of the liver, or the path of comments, or the expansion of the universe, you need to do so objectively, and ideally experimentally. It would be a fundamental mistake to try and understand such things in personal, or subjective, or teleological, or intentional terms. However, if you try to understand humans in those objective or experimental terms, you're going to end up objectifying or experimenting on them. You will end up putting them in cages. And more to the point, you won't even understand them. Rather, if you want to understand a person fully, to know them, you need to do so in personal, subjective, intentional terms. You treat them not as an object, but as a subject, because they, like you, are a subject. A simpler way of putting this is to borrow from the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, who talked about two ways of knowing and relating. You can know an entity as an I knowing an it. I, it, first and third person. And there are many, many things like carbon atoms, tectonic plates, livers and comets that it's best to know only as its. But you can also know an entity as a you, I, you first and second person. You can try to know a person as an it, as a something, but in doing so, you can never know them fully, only in part, only know about them. To know a person, you also have to know them as a you, as a someone. 
Science is the discipline of knowing it, of objectively studying things. Religion is an arena of knowing yous, of coming into subjective relationship with yous. Now, I want to clarify two things here before I close. The first is that I'm not claiming that only religious people see people as subjects rather than objects. That obviously isn't the case. Rather, I am saying that religions and other ideologies that have a subject-based understanding of the human operate on a fundamentally different level to science. And in that regard, at least, Stephen Jay Gould is right. They are different magisteria. But, and this leads me to my second point, I'm not claiming that these different ways of understanding don't overlap. On the contrary, when it comes to thinking about people, they do overlap. It's just that they don't necessarily clash. In other words, it is possible to understand you as an it, what a doctor will do when you go and see her. But it's also possible to understand you as a you, which is what your family, friends, employers, acquaintances do as, of course, do health professionals. By way of closing, I think that we might want to bear in mind this distinction between the I and the it and the I and the you, different ways of knowing, different ways of relating for the future. Because although my main examples in this talk have been historical, I do think the issues it raises, and in particular the questions of humanity and authority, are simply going to get bigger and more important in the future. We're going to find ourselves wrestling with questions like how far should we enhance human beings through technology? How far should we select human beings through technology? Will robots ever be worthy of the status of humans? Should they ever be accorded human rights? At what point and how will we ever know whether AI is conscious? These are all inherently difficult and agonistic questions, and they're made all the more so when you throw into the mix the question of authority, who gets to decide. But it's a pleasing irony that we find ourselves today in a very similar position to many of our forebears do, albeit with what appears on the surface to be very different issues. Questions of humanity and authority will recur. Facing them will be tricky, and we can only hope that we do so with more grace than was exhibited in the library in the new University Museum in Oxford in 1860. Thank you very much. Nick Spencer is exploring how science and religion relate to one another and how the connection between the two is shaping the world we live in because this relationship has practical implications. He now takes audience questions moderated by Vicky Johnson, Canon presenter at York Minster. You talk very briefly about, for example, the rise in young earth creationism presently. Um, and I wonder if you could perhaps reflect on why you think that might be happening um, in a scientific age. It's often assumed that creationism, young earth creationism, the belief that the world was created in some time in the last 10,000 years and in a six day period, is synonymous with fundamentalism and it's something of a surprise to learn that actually some of the original fundamentalists, people who wrote the fundamentals, were evolutionists and Darwinians. It wasn't, I mean it was an issue in the 19th century but it became much more of an issue in from about 1910 onwards for a variety of reasons. There were certainly theological objections to it 
But there were also moral, social and imperialistic objections to it. And they focused in and came to a, to a head in the great Scopes Monkey Trial in Dayton, Tennessee in 1925. It went underground then for about 40 or 50 years or so and emerged in the late 1960s and has become a flag around which certain values have rallied. Elaine Howard Eklund, who is a very fine sociologist of religion in the US, has conducted numerous vast studies into the exact reasons why so many Americans, and it has to be said, increasing numbers of um, Pentecostal Christians around the world, and indeed Muslims around the world, are reacting so strongly against evolution, particularly evolution by natural selection. And she come up with a variety of reasons, but if there's a core, it's because they instinctively interpret evolution, not as a merely scientific theory, but as a fundamental metaphysical presupposition, not simply about the generation of species, but about the purpose or lack thereof of human dignity, human intentionality, a plan to the world, a purpose to your life. And so they judge it as a kind of an existential threat which, in all fairness, some evolutionary biologists describe it as, rather than as a specific theory. We've had um, a little bit of a debate in chat which touches on uh, the space for metaphysics in the contemporary world. So the question asks, doesn't it seem that the religious supernatural explanations are superseded by natural mechanistic ones, and this trend doesn't seem to be stopping. If this is true, what space is left for the metaphysics that religion needs? The slight challenge that question is that it automatically assumes or pits religion as simply the sphere of supernatural explanations rather than natural ones. And there are undoubtedly versions of all the mainstream religions, and no doubt Christianity, that open themselves up to that. But I've been writing an extended history of, of science and religion. In it, I, I discovered a group of Christian philosophers, and we would call them anachronistically, but fairly scientists, from the 12th century, who are known as the Physici, who are thoroughly, if you like, orthodox, of course they are, they're writing in Christendom, but who argue that if you are going to explain natural events, you need to do so through natural mechanisms. And that is in no way a challenge to the existence of God, because God has set up a creation which functions, which works. Now, there is an entirely separate argument about does he ever intervene with it, intervene in it, and if so, how would you know, which is the whole debate about miracles. But the idea that creation is lawful and ordered and can be understood in naturalistic terms by the human mind is actually a profoundly theological idea. The very idea of the lawfulness of creation can be traced back to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible's concept of God as a lawgiver. And a lot of the early scientists in, the, in Christendom said God governs his people through laws there are also indications that he governs the world through laws. And therefore, because we are made in his image, we are able to study and understand those laws. So a naturalistic understanding, which is a foundation to the scientific revolution, is in no way, I would suggest, incompatible with certainly Christian theology, which is the area I know best. 
In terms of uh, Christian theology and that perspective, um, there's a question here that's sort of floating in this area, I think. Perhaps science cannot tell you the correct ethical theory, but can your religion tell you whether to favour consequentialism or virtue ethics? It depends which ethicists, which Christian ethicist you're asking, really. I'm going to be biased in that because I would argue that because Christian theology is fundamentally personalistic, in other words, it is centred on the concept of the human person, it would orient you away from consequentialism, certainly away from cruder forms of utilitarianism, which effectively say that a good action is the aggregate of lots of happiness or pleasure. I would suggest that it orients you towards virtue ethics, but as I intimated, this is something of a live debate. Have you found any overlaps with the simultaneous debate about whether it was possible to treat the life of Jesus as a historical subject, um, e.g. the mid-19th century books by Ernest Renan and John Seeley? There is a theological thread in interpreting Jesus as a historical figure um, and really mining down into that. So whoever asked that question knows their history. We assume that the Victorians got very hot under the collar in about 1860 because The Origin of Species was published in 1859 and they didn't. It animated a lot of opinion, but actually what bugs them far more was a collection of essays called Essays and Reviews, which was published a few months later, which was the first time English theology had imported what was at the time known as German higher criticism, which was the idea that you read the Gospels and you read the New Testament as a historical document and you try to understand Jesus as a historical figure. And that scandalised Victorian opinion. And the two are often confused so that we see this kind of famous kind of Victorian crisis of faith as a result to evolution. And it really wasn't. I mean, this is a slight exaggeration, but I've read some um, Victorian historians of the Victorian period who say that they haven't come across a single person who lost their faith because of Darwin. Bit of an exaggeration, I think, but it's nonetheless the case that what bugged Victorians was the humanisation of Jesus and the treatment of the New Testament as what you might call a secular text, as a text you should understand historically within its context. Now, you know, 150 years later, that is supremely self-evident to anyone who's ever studied the New Testament, but it was that that upset a lot of Victorians. There might be a little parallel there about, you know, where you humanise Jesus and secularise the New Testament and at exactly the same time as you are naturalising the process of speciation. But there were nonetheless kind of parallel enterprises rather than directly intertwined ones. Amazing answer. Great question. <laughs> um, you've talked about science and religion um, as terms which are reductive and simplistic and yet helpful shorthand. Would drilling down into the difference between natural philosophy, this is a question, magic, science, we could add superstition in there if you like, help avoid the old conflict narrative? So it's about, I suppose it's about um, expanding terms. Would that help dispel the kind of the conflict narrative that we, we hear so much of? Even today, might come to that. This sounds like a question from one of my potential funders. Um, the reason I say that is that I'm roughly halfway through a, a, a three-year project, which is effectively disambiguating the terms science and religion. And what I mean by that is um, Peter Harrison, who I mentioned in the talk, is a very, very fine American, um, Australian academic, has written a book called The Territories of Science and Religion, when he points out that these terms only achieved their modern meanings in the late 
19th century or so. And before then, they meant very different things. And there were lots of other terms like natural philosophy, like natural theology, like divinity and so on and so forth that were used in their place. And we misunderstand the past if we think there was one thing called science, one thing called religion, and they clashed. I think Peter's argument is very, very sound. I don't think it goes far enough. And what we've been doing in this project is interviewing a hundred or so leading academics and science communicators. We've had people like AC Grayling and Susan Greenfield and, and Brian Cox and people like that. And we've also just got back an enormous public opinion survey of about 5,000 people or so, trying to get at the idea essentially of when you're talking about science, what are you talking about? And when you're talking about religion, what are you talking about? It may be the case that you have a concept of science and a concept of religion, and they are genuinely, fundamentally incompatible. That's great. We'll find out about that. But very often what's actually happening is that the two terms are being used generically or ambiguously or vaguely, and people end up just talking past one another a lot of the time. So we're kind of halfway through this project to try and pull apart the different constituent elements of the two categories or the two terms and say, the metaphor is effectively a landscape. We've assumed that there's this self-evident landscape with two self-evident entities, one called science, one called religion, and they're clashing. And what we're doing in this project is burrowing down into particular areas of the landscape and asking what's actually going on here with regard to this specific discipline, say cosmology, or what's going on here with regard to this underlying philosophical presupposition, or what's going on here relating to the question of medical ethics and trying to expand and understand the details of the interaction. I guess the problem with that, Nick, is that takes effort, uh, that, take, <laughs> that, that takes work. And you, you spoke at the beginning about uh, the idea of complexity basically being boring. Can people be bothered to do any of this? Well, we'll tell from, from, from the sales of the abstruse, difficult monograph that will be published at the end of this enterprise. You're right. They won't. This is the kind of thing that academics love. I mean, I can spend three years talking about this stuff, knowing that seven other people will read the book. It is a genuine problem. The, the Draper-White conflict warfare narrative um, it was hopelessly inaccurate, but it's, it's a brilliant device. It's a, it's a superb device. Some people, Peter being one of them, have tried to introduce a single controlling metaphor, and his is territories, by means of which we understand this. The, the, the challenge this whole debate is is can we capture the complexity of the relationship in a metaphor that is sufficiently digestible to elbow aside the conflict or warfare narrative? As yet, I haven't been able to. If anyone is, please contact me. We're all waiting on your research, Nick. Um, a question here from a certain Tom McLeish. Hello, Tom. A view expressed in some of the comments that we've been um, looking at is that the trend of natural mechanistic explanations superseding religious ones seems not to be stopping yet. In our own age, we see the first substantial flat earth movement in history. We see anti-vaxxers, we see climate change denial, uh, we see fake truth and other signals that we're living in an increasingly science denying but post-Christian society. Do you want to talk about that? Well, I couldn't agree more. In fact, um, I'm at the moment reading a book by an American academic called Naomi Oreskes called Why Trust Science? It's based on her Tanner lectures um, about, about four years ago. And you know, Tom's absolutely on the money. And, and in fact, Naomi Oreskes talks about a lot of these examples. 
This isn't, it should be saying, a shift towards supernaturalistic explanations. I don't think that's what's happened. It's actually a more sociological phenomenon, which is related to our inherent distrust of authority today. Um, institutions are bad things. Authoritarianism is obviously a bad thing, and authority is always there to be questioned. And particularly if I have some vested interest in authority being wrong, I will find reasons to undermine it. So actually, Oreska's first book is called Merchants of Doubt, when she forensically explores the way in which the fossil fuel industry sowed seeds of doubt about anthropogenic climate change from the 80s and 90s onwards as a way of undermining the authoritative reports of the International Panel on Climate Change because they had something invested in it. So it, it is a sociological phenomenon about our society, about vested interests and about our attitude to, our very hyper-sceptical attitude sometimes towards authority. It's very, very difficult to address that. And Oreskes has a couple of suggestions. The first is you don't dismiss it. It's very tempting to say these people are simply mad or bad, um, but doing so simply feeds the beast. And the second point she makes is that historically some science has been very badly wrong. I mentioned you know, basic eugenics and Otterbenga. She comes up with this extraordinary example from the late 19th century, which I'd never heard of, which is called the limited energy theory. And it was a very serious scientific idea, which was borrowed by some medics from thermodynamics, which argued, and I kid you not, that women shouldn't be educated because there was limited energy within the human body and women needed that for reproduction. Now, unsurprisingly, female scientists were not persuaded by that argument. And she used that to build the argument that actual fact, one of science's best defences against merchants of doubts and sceptics is a broad coalition and a wide and diverse range of scientists who are able to, as it were, not simply be pigeonholders them as opposed to us. If the scientists are us, we no longer are so inclined to question them and doubt them. That's fascinating. Um, so what, what are the sources of authority that you think are holding sway in contemporary culture? Um, is it celebrity? Is it, uh, can you sort of define what you think is going on? Is it nationalism? Help, help, help. Um, if you've got two minutes, I'll pop upstairs and, and chat with my teenage daughter and, and I'll give a much more coherent answer to that question. I was reading a review on the weekend by Dominic Sandbrook in the Sunday Times of a book which is a history of recent times, effectively from sort of 1990s onwards, maybe even from 2000 onwards. And I haven't read the book, but from Sandbrook's review of it, the author was arguing that a characteristic of modern age is that we are locating authority in the people. Now, you would have thought you always do that if you live in a democracy, but of course there are different concepts of the people in which you can locate authority. And this modern history argues that, you know, that effectively trusting the people, which tends to mean other people like me, is where we locate our authority. I think instinctively we all do that as human beings. But as has been repeated endlessly in the last 10 years or so, if the common space for discussion, which existed beforehand through lots of print media and public service broadcasting is shrinking in favour of much more personalised spaces through social media, 
that leads to a fragmented public square and little localized areas of authority which clash with one another. So I think it's in the people, but in particular, we're putting locating authority in people who kind of already think a bit like I do. Terrifying. If we decided that science merely described God rather than contradicting or explaining God, would this shift debate and understanding? This is a question in chat. And I, I wonder if it's edging towards um, theology as the queen of the sciences kind of question. But your thoughts on that would be great. If science described God, I, I've got to say, slightly tongue-in-cheek, if it did, I'd probably stop believing. I think any God that can be described through science or indeed through human language is not worth believing in, really. It's a bit like the argument, isn't it, that um, some people use that you know, God doesn't exist in the same way that, uh, because you, know, you can't find Tolstoy in the pages of Anna Karenina. Um, and if you could, therefore he would. You know, science might and arguably does give kind of gestures and indications, but they can only ever be only ever be pointers. And much of this debate is effectively in which direction they're, they're pointing. If science or indeed any other intellectual discipline ever feels confident enough to say it has described, let alone sort of definitively described God, I would suggest that we're just talking at cross purposes, really. I know that's a very frustrating, very frustrating answer, because then the question comes up, well, OK, how do you believe in God? Why do you believe in God? And what, what, what's justification? But, you know, it's messy. And I also want to throw in, I'd like to throw in, uh, into that question, music and art and poetry and literature and all the, kind, the, the other side of our humanity, which also helps us as people of faith understand and you know get to know God so I think obviously being a scientist myself and also a musician I sometimes get caught up in this debate where it seems to be very lopsided so I, I think if we could maybe open up this debate to, to wider kind of input from, from other disciplines and perspectives including the arts and science together arts and science working together are usually fascinating you're preaching to the choir there and, and, and poetry, which I studied at university originally many years ago, is, is deep, uh, it's very close to my heart in, in this matter. And I think absolutely right. There's a lovely story about um, Wittgenstein, went to go and speak to a group of philosophers called the Vienna Circle in the late 1920s. The Vienna Circle were disciples effectively of Wittgenstein and they were formed after his 1922 but the Tractatus was published and the Tractatus he thought was the end of all philosophy and it concludes with the famous line, whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must be silent. And all the Vienna Circle assumed that that meant there are scientific statements and logical statements and everything else is literally nonsense. Metaphysics, theology, poetry, it is literally nonsense. They thought that's what he meant. When he turned up at the Vienna Circle in the late 1920s, he read poetry to them. He read Rabindranath Tagore and they got very frustrated. And actually Wittgenstein, what he meant was that you can certainly describe certain things... But that doesn't mean that the only things you can describe are the only things that matter. There are vastly more and more important issues in life that cannot be pinpointed in words, which actually, as far as he was concerned, did matter. And poetry is one way of conveying them, and as you say, music is the other, or another. We've got about five minutes, and I've got three questions um, that I'm trying to sort of uh, simulate to get in. The first, um, in the last year, we've heard a lot about following the science and being data-driven during a, a global pandemic. So can you reflect on how science has been used or, dare I say, abused in the last year and how it's perhaps been misunderstood? 
I suppose, so two things that occur to me there. One is that um, the phrase, follow the science, can and sometimes has been used as a bit of a hideaway, really. Because if Boris Johnson makes this decision, do I really trust it? Do I really trust him? Probably not. If the scientists are making this decision, or basically saying this decision is the only one you can take, oh, well, in that case... So there is an interesting authority issue here, which we've been talking about. And it just goes to show that even though, as in Tom's question, you know, anti-vaxxers and flat earthers are growing, let's not despair. Over the last 15 years or so, 15 years, 15 months or so, it just feels like 15 years. Um, you know, we have followed, seen a lot of science. We followed a lot of science and it saved a lot of lives. But the flip side of that is, again, weasel word science. What exactly is science? Well, you know, science when it comes to the genetic code of the virus, very reliable. The science when it comes to the designing and the implementing and then the distributing of the vaccine, very reliable. When it comes to the science of understanding how people and societies would respond to governmental calls for lockdown, there are more errors there, more mistakes. So follow the science, yes, but always ask which science and where it's pointing. Brilliant, thank you. Um, we, we're going to have to uh, tackle this question, Nick, relating to the Professor of Public Understanding of Science, Alice Roberts, Richard Dawkins, the contemporary, if you like, Huxley, Wilberforce debate uh, that rages over Twitter every day. Can you talk about that and, and that contemporary debate that's going on at the moment around us? I don't think it's a debate, if I'm being honest with you. I think it's more of a harangue. Or it yeah. feels like it a lot of the time. A monologue? No, actually, because a lot of people get, get, I mean, you know, a lot of people respond. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a monologue. I, I think conversations are great and discussions are great because they're non-zero-sum experiences. It is not the case that in a conversation, one person has to walk away with less than the other person. Proper conversation, proper discussion means people walk away with more than they brought to the table. Unfortunately, too much conversation around science and religion has turned into a zero-sum game. I win, you lose, or vice versa. And, you know, for people who know what they know and know it's true and have nothing else to learn, fine. But frankly, I find it really tedious. And, you know, I'd much rather engage in conversation with someone who is kind of devoutly sceptical, but also sceptical about their own views, than someone, rather religious or non-religion, who knew the truth, and whose job in the conversation was to make sure that you learned the truth. And I, you started this whole webinar talking about, in effect, a conversation or a debate. Um, and I just wonder whether there's something for us all to take away about how we actually have conversations in contemporary culture, because that cuts across all kinds of disciplines. Can we just learn to have a conversation? Yeah, my, my colleague Elizabeth Oldfield runs this lovely podcast called The Sacred, in which you know she talks to people usually people who have very different views from herself and listens to them and gives space for a conversation and you know I think it's one of those examples where you do walk away whether you're a participant or a listener to the conversation as enriched and, and knowing more and again let's not be too pessimistic I still think that's the norm people want to learn more and want to want to be kind of challenged and, and not devolve into the zero-sum game the problem is as we said right at the beginning you know for the same reason that Wilberforce said what he did to Huxley Winning a debate feels lovely and, you know, it feels like you're, you're, you're the victor. But ultimately, I think it's a, it's a terrible kind of mistake.
And I guess that's why we're all here. That's why people come to things like this, because people want to actually engage and discuss and think. So uh, that's fantastic. One more question um, as we come into land. It's a nicer question, I hope. Um, You spoke about the I-it way of knowing and the I-you way of knowing, which is relational, community-orientated. And you raised the question yourself about what happens when something that we consider an it a machine or an artificial intelligence becomes a you. It's almost like an act of creation, I guess. If anyone in the audience hasn't read it, I strongly recommend Kazuo most recent novel, Clara and the Sun. It's magnificent and it deals with exactly this issue. One of the questions we asked in our survey was, do you think machines will ever have a soul or should be accorded human rights? For, for my money, I'm, I'm perfectly open to that. I don't have problems with that at all. But if they do, I think it'll have virtually nothing to do with how much they think and virtually everything to do with how much they eat and excrete. And, and I mean that very seriously. I think it is we have, we have massively overplayed cognitive power in our conception of um, intelligence and humanity and massively underplayed mere physical existence and fragility. And when you get computers that have to forage for food, dispose of their waste and are fragile, that's the point, I think, when we start needing to record them human rights or perhaps even a soul. That's a profound place to finish. Thank you, Nick, again for joining us and goodbye. Nick Spencer and Vicky Johnson in conversation at the recent York Festival of Ideas. Thanks to them for this recording. I'm Paul Barclay and this is Big Ideas. Thanks for joining me. Bye for now. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.